This is a Spirit of Truth Radio Arts original program in partnership with Salt and Light Catholic Radio. My guest in this episode has had an amazing journey so far, from a rebellious Pentecostal to a practicing Satanist, then to become a professed Buddhist monk, finally finding his home in the Catholic Church. From a drug-addicted troublemaker to an author, sharing the depths of his heart in his new book, Mercy in the Details, joining me along the way to share his amazing story of redemption is David Fisher. David, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. How are y'all today? Uh, we are great. Oh, I, I can only speak for myself. I am great. Deacon Dave, right. how are you? I'm doing fantastic. It's great to be with you guys today. It's good to be. David Fisher, you are the author of a, a new book, and you're also a new to Catholicism, so I, I'm so totally blown away and amazed by your, your zeal for faith. You're the author of Mercy in the Details, and you know, usually we hear the devil is in the details, but... Your, your play on words here is, is amazing. Let's start at the beginning of your life. Where did you come from? Well, I grew up in southern West Virginia. I grew up in a little town called uh, Yukon. Uh, it's right out of, outside of another little town called War, which they pride themselves on being the most southern point of West Virginia. Um, I was born in Bluefield, West Virginia. You know, I grew up a typical southern West Virginia guy. I um, I grew up with uh, a family that lived off and on with my grandfather uh, folks and everything like that. And, uh, but, you know, my, uh, my story is a little bit different than most because uh, my mom and my biological father, they divorced when I was about nine months old. And, um, you know, I, I guess at that beginning in time, I was the only boy in the family out of a slew of girls there was all all girls in my family so so me and my biological father was always you know not like a real connection because uh, I I would see him on weekends so that turned into later on in life my mom met a couple of uh, stepfathers um, unfortunately they ended up being extremely abusive um, after that, because of all that, I blamed my mom for a lot of the stuff that went on in my life, that she could have taken me out of it, not recognizing the fact that she was being abused as well. Um, so I became a really rebellious teenager. Um, in Southern West Virginia, the main populace is about Pentecostal. And so I was raised Pentecostal holiness, and I really started bucking against that and didn't want to be into Christianity and then I did and then I didn't and a lot of it was centered around I wanted to I wanted to make my parents happy because I saw the joy that it brought them that I was Christian but it didn't bring me any joy it just brought a whole lot of confusion mm -hmm. and so I struggled with the whole um, concept of the Pentecostal religion I didn't quite get it and my answers weren't being answered my questions weren't being answered rather. Um, and uh, so I, I just said, you know, forget it. I don't believe in anything. I'm just going to be this rebellious teenager. I don't have to live by your rules. You know, um, I think my friend and then they say I was like the typical nineties teenager. <laughs> it was just full of angst and hate and all this stuff. So, um, but eventually that turned into me, studying satanism 
when I got into my early, you know, I was around 16 when I started dabbling into that. And I got into that pretty deep to the point where it was almost scary to leave that situation. As much as I thought the Pentecostal church was hard to get away from, the Satanism was equally as, I mean, just rough to get away from. Um, so I was in that for until I was probably about 21, 22 years old. Uh, and around that time, that's when I started getting to a lot of drug use. Um, I still had a lot of pain from the childhood trauma that I was I had experienced and I had no outlet. And so my drug of choice was, what do you have? Because whatever you've got, I want to take because it numbs me. Mm -hmm. and so that one time turned into a whole bunch of times to where I thought I was partying for about six months. Turned out it was two and a half years that I was just on a bender. The, by the grace of God, I was saved and um, to by being homeless. I eventually got to the point where I lost my apartment. My friends got tired of taking care of me and let me crash on their couches. And so I called the only person I knew to call, which was my aunt. And I'd totally messed up things with my family at that point. I'd stolen from them. I'd taken things from them, selling them for drugs and just being a tyrant uh, in general, especially when I was into Satanism, my main goal was to make their life and the world around them chaotic, just as much chaos as I could cause. That was the greatest. And, but I, I, I swallowed my pride and I got the phone and I called her and I was like, you know, I have nowhere else to go. I have nowhere else that I can, what I can do. And mm -hmm. she was like, done so much to us. But she said, I'll help you. And it only took that one person to help me. And I went to her house and she wouldn't let any of my friends see me. She basically locked me down. <laughs> and wow. she, uh, she told me that I couldn't do anything while I was there. Uh, partying, going to visit friends or anything like that, but I could not have a job. I either had to have a job or I had to join the military because I had to do something. So I went to the Army. Uh, well, I went to the Air Force recruiter at first because I was like, yeah, that seems like the easiest that I could do. And <laughs> I'm pretty lazy and I want to do the Air Force job. And so when I got there, the Air Force guys were actually out at the high school doing the recruiting that day. So Navy guy popped his head out and was like, can I help you? And I was like, well, I guess I'm a sailor. And so <laughs> we did all the paperwork and stuff, but I didn't, wasn't able to go in until a month later because my drug, my initial drug uh, test, I tested positive for everything that they test for. Um, it was to the point where the senior, um, the senior chief that was over the Navy recruiting station, he took pictures of it because he'd never seen anybody <laughs> test positive for everything. And so I got into the military. It was rough at first. I remember my very first phone call home. I couldn't talk because I was crying so bad. I was like, oh, God, this is the worst mistake I ever made. By the end of it, it was so natural and so repetitive. And I've gotten to that structure that 
it was life-saving for me. It was, I kicked a habit. I kicked a lot of habits. I was smoking cigarettes like a chimney. And uh, then when I got out of the military, I went uh, to a school. It was kind of an A school. I went to undesignated so I could get in faster, but it was still in Pensacola. And I put down that I wanted all overseas, all ship. Um, because I'm here I am, this little hillbilly from West Virginia, I ain't seen nothing of the world, and I wanted to go see the world. So I put down places like Guam and, you know, different places no one wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, my instructor, he was like, you're going to get anything you want on this list because nobody wants this stuff. I was like, well, good, that's what I want. Yeah. Well, my orders, I went to Jacksonville, Florida, working on an airplane that doesn't even touch a ship. <laughs> so I didn't go anywhere near overseas. <laughs> so I got down there, I did my work. And, but, you know, as drug addicts will often tell you, it creeps back up on you. And I was the oldest in a position. So they made me a supervisor um, yeah. while they had another supervisor coming in from another duty station. Well, they didn't tell me that that was going to be like eight months. And so here I am doing that work as an airman that should be for a second class. And I'm at that, I'm in Florida. And the first thing I find is cocaine. And I found that I could do work extremely fast and I could do what they wanted me to do and keep up and keep up. So Again, I fell back into my old patterns of drug use. Is this um, the first time you'd been on your own? In the Navy, yes. Yeah. It was the first time I'd ever been away from family, friends, completely on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got into that. And unfortunately, the guys that I started hanging out with that were doing it, they've got, uh, they got dishonorably discharged. And I was about to head down that way, but my... I had one petty officer who saw something in me and he got me into another duty station and away from all that. And I had actually met a girl at that time too, who turned out, she eventually became my wife. And of course now is my ex-wife, but she, um, with that, it was, it was like the easiest thing to do kick was cocaine because I had her. And then I went to another duty station where I needed to get my act together. Um, Still didn't help that I was abusing like over-the-counter diet pills and things like that to maintain weight and all this other stuff that you have to do in the military. I remember one time I I didn't, they, if you don't make weight, you have to make tape. So um, we used to take preparation H and put it on our bodies and wrap ourselves in cellophane. uh, So we can get those last couple of little inches to go away (laughs) while we were taped. I mean, it was, I remember many a day sitting in the sauna with trash bags on me, just sweating. And I had no clue how I didn't die from heat stroke, but that's what we did to make sure we got weight. We were young and dumb when we had to do that stuff. Yeah. You know, because I'm a veteran myself. And and yeah, I I, I know I've seen that stuff. I remember just playing basketball for two hours a day just (laughs) just to be able to, you know, maintain the weight, you know. Yeah, I used to run five miles a day so I could do my mile and a half run. Yep. Yep. So 
we and we would run on the beach so that way it was harder to do so that way whenever we went on the track it was super easy and we just flew right through it mm-hmm. uh, so me and my girlfriend at the time we end up getting married and unfortunately for me as being an addict um, I know now through hindsight being 2020 that drugs aren't the only thing that you can use for addiction you can also use people as an addiction as well uh, something to something to put your happiness in other than in yourself and so that she was my new drug she was the person that I was going to unfortunately use her love and happiness for me only for me I wasn't going to be reciprocal I was going to just take and not give Mm -hmm. we had kids you know we tried to make it better and you know I I won't sit here and say she did this and I did that as I can say what I did was awful and I can sit here and badmouth her but that's the mother of my kids and I, I, I would never do that she's a good mom and it just didn't work out sometimes it doesn't um, we make better friends than we did a married couple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. after that, I got a little depressed. You know, I'm still, I injured my back in the military and then I had painkillers come into my life. So I was on those as well. And then when we divorced, it seemed like everything just kept domino and out of control in my life. And mm-hmm. Oh, I am, you know, I was looking into Wicca and then I'd studied Wicca in the past, trying to get out of Satanism, which is not a great alternative. And um, it got to the point where it was just, I was so depressed. I didn't realize why I was depressed. And uh, my buddy that I worked with was like, hey, have you ever heard of Buddhism? And I was like, well, you know, I know who the Dalai Lama is, but I, that's about as far as my knowledge of Buddhism goes. Yeah. He was like, let me bring books. I'll bring you a mala, which is just a string of prayer beads. And, uh, you know, you need to do some meditation. It's like, okay. So I started reading and trying to do what they were teaching in the books and realized I had absolutely no clue what these guys were talking about. None. And so I was like, you know, I think I really need to go somewhere and sit with someone and learn this stuff. So he gave me a couple of alternatives and I went to them and eventually I went to um, a Buddhist center where uh, I met my very first teacher and he taught me meditation. I had very different sessions with him where I was learning a lot of coping skills. Um, I was still abusing my medication like crazy, but I thought, you know, here I am, I'm doing something peaceful. That's good enough. So. After him, I I asked if there was some other places. So I went to a different place that he had told me about. And then I met my second teacher who I studied under for three years. And this is all under the formation of becoming a Buddhist monk. And then I met my teacher who I actually did my profession with um, and professed my vows to become a Buddhist monk. And I thought for sure that, you know, here I am, I'm a Buddhist monk, I'm wearing clothes that show that I'm not vain, I'm doing all these good things, God will leave me alone, (laughs) you know, it's over with, I'm doing good now, everything's good. Do you kind of Um, feel like you'd found what what was missing in your life at that point? Yeah, kind of, but it still felt like there was something not there, I didn't feel quite whole. 
Mm -hmm. um, and it's fleeting because I'd, I'd get that sense of overwhelming joy and stuff when I would progress through the through my um, the hierarchy and getting my different robes and things like that. And it would be like, oh, it's, it's well of pride. And but it would go away. And then after that, it's like, oh, well, what what now? What, what am I doing? And, um, you know, I kept talking to my mom and my stepdad and, my, you know, me and my real dad, we did have a relationship at this time. It was still rocky because I had really messed up with them pretty bad. But they just kept saying they were going to pray for me and just to keep doing good things. Mm -hmm. And then one day my mom called and my stepfather uh, was going to be going to be put on, he was going to have to be put on dialysis. And because he was going on dialysis, he had had cancer, been fighting different elements, and he was just like, I'm ready to go home. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Mom, go take him home. She was like, No, Dad, you don't understand. He's ready. He's ready to go to heaven. He doesn't want. He's ready to die. And that hit me like a ton of bricks because he was, out of all the stepfathers that I had, he was the one that loved me and showed me that. I could be loved and I deserved it. You and I had spoken before we had done this interview, which is something I usually don't do, but I really wanted to reach out for some reason and talk to you about that. Is he the, is he the gentleman that you said is, is the most uh, incredible man that you'd, you'd ever met? He is. He is. He's, uh, and not to speak harsh of my own father, my biological father. I love my dad. He was, he was in my life and he did his best and we had our ups and downs mm -hmm. after being abused so many times. And then I had a stepfather that really showed me a father love. I, he was the greatest guy ever. And he wasn't, he was patient with me. And I was going to ask you, what, what was it about his relationship with you that touched you so much? It was his patience. Yeah. Everybody else would be like, oh, you know, they give up or they saw they, but he came in with a fresh set of eyes mm -hmm. and saw a kid that needed some guidance yeah. uh, where most people had just given up. And well, uh, when he, uh, when he passed away, I went out there to be with him and he never referred to me as a stepson. I was always his boy. I was always his son. And when I got there, he hadn't talked because he couldn't talk much. Yeah. And the first thing he said was, there's my boy. And he gave me a big hug as best as he could. And he never spoke again after that. But he always wanted me to go to church. He'd always said, David, go to church. I don't care what church, just get right with Jesus. Get right with the Lord. Yeah. I want to be with you in paradise. And um, the day after I got there, they had showered him all up and everything. And um, he passed away. And, um, you know, I'm still, I'm a fully or professed Buddhist monk at this time. So I, have, I don't have any clothes. I took a carry-on bag and everybody else is complaining about luggage and all I had was a carry-on bag. <laughs> it didn't matter because that was my whole wardrobe fit in this carry-on bag. Um, well, that goes back to your Navy training. <laughs> yeah, I did. I do know how to roll some skivvies. I can tell you that. 
but um then after they give him a shower and everything like um he started hesitating in his breathing mm. and my aunt was like i think he's getting ready to go and eventually he took one big deep breath and let it out and he was gone and so I went outside and I called my ex-wife so she could let my kids know and our kids know that, uh, you know, their, their papa had passed. And when I did that, it felt like people were walking by me. And I know it sounds absolutely insane and it's crazy when I tell people this. It sounds crazy to me. But it was as people were walking towards that room. And it caught me off guard. Like, I'm like, what's going on? Why is the wind's not blowing? There's nothing like that. And I tried to push it aside. And then I just told my ex-wife, it's like, I have to call you back. Some, I have to go inside. So I went into his room and it felt as if there were people everywhere. It felt so like there was wall-to-wall people. It felt claustrophobic. Yeah. Like, I felt like I was in a... You know, I'd been in parties where we were elbow to elbow, and that's what it felt like. And then I looked over at him, and I get this overwhelming feeling. It's like I could see with my heart, if that makes any sense at all. Perfect it, sense. It was as if hands were coming down, scooping my stepdad like water and taking him up, and then it was gone. Everything was gone. And it was just me and my aunt and my mom in that room. And I still get goosebumps just because I can remember that moment so vividly because I just stood there and I was like, what in the world was that? What was that? And I went back home after the funerals and everything like that. And I talked to my, my, uh, my teacher who you know I was going through my profession with. He's like, you know, it's just you have a very good imagination, David. He's like, I've known you for years. Your imagination's very, it's this is just your grieving process with a very vivid imagination. But that didn't feel right. That didn't sit right within me. I was like, no, it can't be because I'd never experienced anything like that before in my life. And so I started meditating about it. Little did I know that meditation can also turn into a form of prayer. And I learned that later in Catholicism that the, God can talk to you through meditation. Mm -hmm. So I would meditate on it and meditate on it. And I tried to meditate on it from a Buddhist perspective. And not for the life of me, I could not, it could not, I couldn't get it. There was nothing. And then one day I was like, you know what? My mom had came down when I made my complete profession. I was a fully ordained Buddhist monk. I was now able to go out and teach, do weddings, everything. And she had went to a Catholic church while she was here. And so when she left, um, after all this, the feelings I was having stuff, I, I told her, I was like, Mom, what church did you go to? She was like, why? And I was like, well, I'm, I told her my experience and everything. And I went, and Buddhism just cannot tell me anything about it. I want to sit church. You know, Dad... I called him dad sometimes. I hope that doesn't bother my real dad, but you know, yeah. I that. But I asked him, I was, you know, I told her, Sal has told me he wants me to go to church so he can be with me in heaven for eternity. I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in it, but Buddhism is not showing me anything. 
I have to go to where he went. I had to sit in a pew like he did right. and know what he was talking about because I wanted, it's like I can't find the answers on my own. And if he was here today, he'd help me. So I went to her, the church that she went to. And when I sat down, I sat in the back. But little did I know, if the, when, later on, a, a priest once told me that if you sit in the way back, that's where the good Catholics are. <laughs> in the front. <laughs> so, but I sat in the back because I didn't want to be a distraction because I didn't know how to stand, how to sit. I didn't know what kneeling was. I was watching everybody to see what they were doing. But while I'm doing that, I see this box to the right of me and I know it's the tabernacle now, but at the time I was like, what is that box? And unfortunately it wasn't behind the altar. It was, if I'm facing the altar, it was to the right. Yep. And I'm like, what is that? And I'm trying to pay attention to what the priest is doing, but it's almost like I'm being drawn towards this box over here. And I'm like, what is that? What is that over there? And right when he's starting to bring up the vessels and everything like that, I feel that feeling again of people walking by me, going towards the altar. Like people are running towards it. They're just rushing towards that altar. And then I see him go over and he takes out from the, this, this golden object. It's, it, it, it was the be- most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And it was just plain Jane, but to me, it was beautiful. Sure. And when he set that down and he lifted up the Eucharist, I knew that that was Jesus. I knew it. I knew that that was God. I knew that he was showing me God right then and there. I was in heaven for that split second. It was the only time I was going to see it here on earth. I knew that that's where I was. I was standing at the foot of the altar of Christ. And I didn't want to go any further because I knew I wasn't worthy enough to go close to it. It was too special for me. And I'll let that place just ball on. Yep. And I went home and I prayed for the first time, really prayed. What was the difference between this prayer and say your, your Buddhist meditation? In this prayer, I believed it. I knew it. Okay. I had, I had seen God, without having just because when I was younger, and this is something I didn't put in the book, I had prayed to see the Lord Jesus, and He didn't come. I, my uh, preacher at the time he had told me, at the third night, Jesus was going to come and I was going to see God, and that never happened. So I, that could be a correlation to why I never believed in Christ. I had a hard time with it. But when I saw that Eucharist, I knew God. Not that I knew I saw him. I knew him. Mm -hmm. And he he knew me. And he loved me. And it was the most overwhelming feeling of love that I ever felt in my life. So I went home and I prayed. And I I wrote my stepdad on Facebook. And I was like, Dad, I'm giving my heart to Jesus Christ. And I want to thank you for being the person in my life who led me towards him. Because I never would have went on to that altar by myself. I never would have went to that church. None of these things would happen. I never would have been there. 
and I posted it on Facebook and my mom calls me up and she said, are you kidding me? <laughs> she, she thought I was making a joke. And I was like, no, mom, I'm serious. She's like, no, don't make fun, David, because you have done stuff crazy like this before. I'm like, no, mom, I'm giving my life to the Lord. But I don't know if I want to become Catholic or not. I have no clue if that's where I want to go. But I know what I have felt. I know that there is a God. I know that there is a Christ. I know that the Eucharist is that. But my concept of Catholicism and Protestantism was just very skewed. I didn't have a very good theology of any either one. Well, I told her I was after a while. I was like, Mom, I think I'm going to pray the Rosary. She goes, you know, you got to be careful with that rosary. Mama Mary will get you. <laughs> you start praying that rosary, you're going to become Catholic. That's all there is to it. You're not going to become anything else but Catholic. Yep. And I started praying, and I started praying the rosary with my intention be: should I become Catholic? Should I become Catholic? And um, not too long after I started praying that prayer, uh, God led me to a Catholic church where I did my RCIA and I just hit the ground running after that. Yeah, I think your expectation was that you were going to become Catholic that day, but it wasn't I quite it, it wasn't quite that that quick for you, was no. it? No, no, no. When I met with the priest the first time, I'm like, all right, who where do I sign? What do I do? Where do I get dunked? Who's dunking me and what lake and where are we gonna do this? You know, I'm I'm ready right now. And he was like, no, it don't work that way. I was like, what do you mean it doesn't work that way? He's like, well, you got to go to RCIA, and that takes six to eight months. I was like, six to eight months? Do you know who I am? <laughs> do you know me, Father? I was like, I, that's kind of a, stu a stupid question, but six to eight months is a really long time for somebody who's went through the stuff that I've went through. Mm. And he's like, well, just keep coming to Mass. Just keep coming to Mass. And that's what I did. And what was, your, grace, what was your drug use like at this time? Um, Had you gotten over it? I was just freshly done doing all of my pain medications. Mm -hmm. So I was off of the pain medications. I was, things were still rocky because, you know, at that time I was still trying to recover from financially and all this from doing, because drug use will mess you up for a very long time. Yeah. And so I'm trying to recover from that and get back into the smart, but you know, I wasn't using anymore, but I was very, very fresh from just completely being done. The reason I asked that is just because when you, you see like six months looks like it's insurmountable, you know, mm -hmm. and it might turn somebody back to, you know, let them fall back into the, the, the way they were until they get what, you know, they need, you know? So I, I just wanted to know that. Well, I did, um, I think one of the biggest things that helped me along the way is while I was um, going, uh, you know, while my dad, uh, while Sal was sick and uh, all the uh, things were going on at the time I was becoming Buddhist, a Buddhist monk, I was also in a chaplaincy program. And that chaplaincy program, we had two sessions a week where it was like a round table session where we just sat and talked about uh, uh, patients we visited things that were going and it, it became a therapy for me it became a, a therapy session for me mm -hmm. it helped me to realize a lot of what i was doing was i was using even without using drugs sometimes 
and that's where it would come in with my ex-wife is I was I did not want to face my own happiness if that makes any sense kind of kind of what a a a calls a dry drunk yeah I did I wanted somebody else to make me happy I didn't want to make them happy but as long as they were making me happy everything was okay Mm. um because they filled that void in me that I didn't want to fill with a love for myself and that's what my thinking was at the time little did I know that that was the love of God that needed to be in my heart yeah once he came into my heart it's just I it's it's not a it's not a void that could ever be unfilled unless I just reject it yeah how did your being a Buddhist how did it help you in your Catholic prayer I think what the being a Buddhist, it helped me to learn the value of silence. Yep. Um, a lot of people that I have met are, they are very afraid of being in the quiet. They uh, have to have something playing or something, you know, some soothing music has to be here. Or, yep. you know, but to just really sit in that silence and not even, you know, thoughts are going to happen. It's just that, um, you know, we're, it's just an organ that's what it does it's whole purpose is to think you can't just completely cut it off right but what thinking on and if you just sit in the silence it's almost you know you're just sitting with god you're being with him yeah and that for me is one of the things that uh, buddhism you know i'm not a very big fan of it because i see what it was at the core of it but I also understand the value of where, why God put me there, because there was no way I could probably be that quiet without that kind of training. You know, a, a lot of St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross, they talk about the different types of prayer and stuff like that. And I think that it's a great way for somebody like th- that has the, the Buddhist training to understand real Catholic prayer and maybe even go to a deeper level than most Catholics can 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 achieve, because they do understand that silence. But once we replace that silence and and emptying ourselves out, and by replacing ourselves, replacing it with Jesus, it's a great great tool. It is, and you know, I, there are times, and I've told people this a hundred times when they've asked me about meditation. I'm like, well, I can't sit for hours on end. I'm like, all you got to do is sit for five minutes. Mm-hmm. Can you give God five minutes? <laughs> I just sit there. I'm like, if you can't sit and pray your rosary, put a rosary in your hand and just concentrate on the feel of the beads in your fingers. Mm-hmm. And don't think about anything but those beads on your fingers. And just let God be God and you be with him. And yeah. that's it. And, but it's, it can be difficult for me at times. Like my brain runs a hundred miles a minute. Sometimes I'm like, God, you know, I apologize. I'm trying to sit here with you, but I really can't stop right now thinking this, my brain's going a hundred miles a minute. I apologize, but I do go back and do it again. I just don't give up and say, well, I, I, I screwed up. God won't ever forgive me, which I've done in the past plenty of times. Sure. At a prayer to when I pray as tried to pray like my uh, dad did uh, with sackcloth and ashes in the Pentecostal church. And I couldn't get it to where, how he would get to that level of prayer. I felt like a failure. Hmm. 
but for me, meditation took a long time to be comfortable in the silence. David, before we move on to talk about your book, I want to bring in Dave Imhoff, see if he has any questions for you. Well, David, uh, <clears throat> some really great observations and uh, skill you have there in your prayer life. We talk about, um, or in, in the catechism, it talks about it, three expressions of prayer, of vocal, uh, meditative, and contemplative. Have you gotten to that contemplative, you think? Uh, it sounds like you have, but... I've gotten into it um, some. I'm reading right now the ways of mental prayer. Um, and I'm contemplative prayer is a little bit different than what I learned in Buddhism. So it's um, it's not something I've actually tackled and got really deep into doing. Uh, most of my stuff, it's silent prayer. And maybe that is a part of contemplative prayer because I'll do uh, readings from my Bible and then just sit in silence. Um, there's also on YouTube a lot of uh, uh, perpetual adoration channels. And yeah. so after I pray my rosary, I'll just sit with the adoration channel on in silence and just kind of absorb what I had just prayed in the rosary, what the mysteries were and things like that. Right. Meditation can lead to contemplation as well, but contemplation really is, it's that silence. It's your sitting in silence in the presence of God, you know, whether, you know, he's with you wherever you are or best is in an adoration chapel as, as you, uh, you know, were referring to, although that those were virtual, but that's uh, sounds like a pretty, pretty effective prayer where life that you have, where you are able to have a conversation with God, know what God's wanting for you in your life, his will for you, et cetera. So nice job. Well, I didn't think it would come as quick as it did, but I think God's making it fast because of all the time that I've lost in the past. I think it was this was supposed to happen a long time ago. God's making up for lost time, but you know, all things in his time. But I also have an adoration, uh, perpetual adoration chapel not too far from me here at the Latin Mass Church I go to, and uh, they um, they have it. You know, it's locked, but if you get like a little key fob, you can go in at any time, any hour, and just go do an hour of adoration, which I absolutely love. We're blessed to have that. I, it breaks my heart that some places don't even have adoration at all. And for me, the Eucharist and the Rosary are two of the biggest things that I think we need in our lives as Catholics. Um, and, you know, from the Eucharist, it also taught me about sin. Like, I didn't know what sin was. I had no clue what a venial sin or a mortal sin was and whether I was doing that or not. But I knew that that Eucharist was Christ. And if I was going to take Christ in me, I didn't want to be blotted, so to speak. I didn't want to have that. I know my garments are stained already because there are sins that, you know, I'm sinful. I'm just, I'm a human being. You know, I have the original sin. I know I've been baptized, but, you know, especially being a guy, this day and time, it's hard unless you're looking at the ground all the time not to have a sin come up into your heart. Mm -hmm. So, it, the Eucharist really brought about a sense of a deeper confession life for me. 
And uh, so I go to confession um, once a week, no more, uh, no later than uh, two weeks. And it, that really helps me. And I also go for a spiritual direction uh, every other week with questions that I have. And I've been doing that for almost a year now. And uh, for me, it just, um, it helps the confession because there was so much I've done in my life. And I know that when I had my, um, my when I was brought into the confirmation into the church, um, I know that my past sins, I don't really need to confess. But at the same time, I, I confess a lot of those sins because they're weights. And it seems like every time that I confess one of them, it's like some, it's like not someone, but God cutting a weight off of me. And I feel so much lighter, like burden has been lifted off of me. So um, I've told uh, my confessor uh, many a times, I'm sorry if I'm confessing things that are in my past, but he's like, no, if it's, if it's helpful for you, keep doing that. David, it's, it's not like you're, you're holding back any sin, but these sins are, are sins that, that come to your mind and then God kind yes. of works with, yeah. So that's good, man. You know, that, that's great. I can only imagine what adoration must be for, for, for you. I, I sense that the, the gift of tears has been given to you. Uh, yeah. And my daughters make fun of me because I'm a big burly guy who cries. <laughs> and they love to give me a hard time for being the big burly man that uh, cries. But God has blessed me with that tender heart. And when I go to mass and I see the rep, the reverence mm-hmm. of certain priests, and when I go to Latin mass and I see the reverence, and when I just go to adoration and just look at Christ there with me, yeah. letting me know, yes, he's there, he's up there, but he's right here too. Yeah. And that it's, I it makes my heart swell. That's awesome, man. You know, the reason I, I reached out to you to talk to you is because you, you're a new author. You know, this is, I think this is your first book. That's correct. I do have a couple of other ones, but they're poetry books. But this is the first book of, you know, this kind that I've ever written. Tell me about the, t- the title, Mercy in the Details. Where did that come from? What was your inspiration for that? Well, I chose Mercy in Details because there was quite a few titles that I was kind of juggling around with. But for me, I stuck with Mercy in the Details because I believe through my story, if you actually look at the details of my story, you see the mercy and grace of Christ. You see the mercy and grace of God because I tell people all the time, if anyone deserves to have God turn their back on them, it's me. I spent the majority of my life telling God I hated him and doing everything I could to get him to hate me. And he never did. And he showed me that grace and that mercy in the littlest details of my life to where I finally came home to him. Wow. Maybe this is asking the same question, but what was your inspiration to write this book? I think my biggest inspiration was my supervisor and my chaplaincy. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I've always struggled with a, a lot of, um, self-doubt, self-esteem issues. Um, you know, I, later on, I did go see a professional, uh, psychologist and, you know, and they have uh, diagnosed me as having OCD 
And so they've worked with me with counseling and other things to get that kind of under control. Mm -hmm. But I, I just felt inadequate. Like my story wasn't good enough to tell anyone. And I was like, well, I've only wrote, written poetry. I can't write a book. There's no way I can write a book. There's no way I can do it. My supervisor sat down because in chaplaincy, you have to tell your story and it has to be an hour long. And so I went through internship, a residency, and a senior residency. So I had to tell mine three different times. And after the third time, he was like, you know, you should really write this down. And I was like, you know, I can't do it. There's no way. Nobody's going to read it. And he was like, let me stop you there. Stop worrying about the future. Just put words on paper. Just put down words. Let your heart talk to those pages. Just type it out. It's like if you get to a point where you have to stop and kind of reflect on what you just written, do that. And there were sections in the book that I wrote. It took me two or three months later to get back to it because it really got me on a level where I had to take a step back and reflect on what I actually had resurfaced and, you know, give that up to God. And so he was a really big inspiration to me actually writing the book. Now, another one, which was without saying, was my stepdad. My stepdad had always told me that I should write. He always encouraged me to write poetry and had always encouraged me to write as much as I could. And he has several books. He's written screen plays and all kinds of stuff. So um, I think that's probably where me and him clicked at the most is because he was a writer. That's, that's so cool, man. How long did it take you to write this book? It took me almost two and a half years. And uh, for some, I mean, it's not a very long book. Some people I have, who have bought it have told me they read it in a night, and I'm, which makes me feel pretty good that they would actually sit down for a night and read my book. And they couldn't but, put it down. No, they just said it read like a conversation. And that's what I wanted it to be like. I didn't want it to be like a you know a typical biography. And I wanted it like I was telling my story like I was at the chaplaincy, but it took me a while because I would start and stop so much. Yeah. Um, and especially when I was talking about the uh, stuff that happened to me when I was a child and those traumas were resurfacing and, you know, I had dealt with them in a Buddhist way, yeah. but I'd never dealt with them in a Catholic way. So when they would resurface, I'd pray and just sit in silence with God. And of course, cry and feel that love of God comforting me. And then when I go to my confessor and tell him some of the things, he helped me a lot too by prayer. And I prayed a lot for those men uh, that did that to me. Uh, they're no longer with us on this earth. And I pray every day that God gives them a, some refreshment in purgatory and brings them closer to the kingdom. Yeah. Uh, because I'm not ever gonna pray anybody that they're in hell. I yeah, want yeah. everybody. Yep. I'd rather pray that everyone is in purgatory. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Do you think this book was therapeutic for you? Did it help you? Extremely, it was extremely therapeutic for me. Yeah. Um, I went and you recently went to, uh, uh, you know, every so often I have to have a psychological evaluation so that way they can adjust medications or anything like that. And the man who was sitting with me doing my evaluation, he was like, you know, you seem a whole lot more confident than you used to. Like you feel, you, you sound to me like you are a man with purpose. 
And I told him, I was laughed. I was like, well, it's funny you should say that because I just wrote a book. And it really, after I got done with it, it made me, it gave me a little bit of a confidence boost. It's like, it's not pride because Lord knows there's a lot better authors out there than I am. But I was like, it was very therapeutic for me to get all this out of me onto a physical medium and he was like, you know what? He was like, I've been thinking about writing a book for the longest time. And I had been very, um, very self-conscious about doing it. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to, he's like, I'm going to think I'm going to go ahead and do it. And I was like, do it, man. Just put words on paper. <laughs> I want to get that as a teacher. Just put words on paper. Yep. That's awesome. <laughs> Nobody knows what I'm talking about, but the writers in the world. But, you know, that's what I, it helped me to have that one phrase, put words on paper. That's great advice. You know, David, we've in this season eight, we've been really kind of exploring people's spirituality. And, I, and I've noticed a couple of times you've mentioned the Latin mass. How does the Latin mass affect you? How does it, you know, has it affected your spirituality? It has not to the point where I wouldn't consider myself like a radical as some people are. Right. I think there's a middle way if I could use a Buddhist term for everything. Sure. Um, but for me, when I went to mass and I uh, just the Novus Ordo mass and I'd seen that and I'd seen it, I'd seen it done both reverently and I've seen it been abused. Um, There's no doubt. And I'm sure within the Latin mass yep. before my time, there was reverence and there was abuse. Yep. Uh, but if it's done reverently, Novus Ordo or Latin Mass is great. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I went to Latin Mass and I heard the words, it was almost like silent prayer. I didn't have a clue what he was saying. Mm -hmm. Didn't know anything. I do. I did know the ups and downs and the, you know, the... The Catholic calisthenics. Yeah, the Catholic calisthenics. Yep. I knew what those were. But it forced me to... It forced me to know that I didn't know what he was saying, but I understood where he was going. Mm -hmm. Understood from my own, um, under, well, from my own understanding of theology, that he was leading us to the mountain and he was taking us to God. Mm -hmm. I always like to use the analogy. I heard Michael Knowles say it one time and I love it. I like my pilot to face forward i don't want my pilot looking at me yeah. <laughs> that's actually like, a good way to put it so um but i don't mind if a priest is facing one way or another i don't get into that whole argument but um but he was leading us and we were all going to calvary we were all present yeah. at the sacrifice of the mass we were all present at the sacrifice of christ Christ was sacrificed, but the resurrection was there at the same time. It was everything perfectly in one. And when it's done reverently in the Novus Ordo, everything is perfectly in one. Right. Christ is there. The sacrifice is there. The resurrection is there. The Lord is there. And for me, the Latin Mass taught me that the Eucharist uh, is the most precious thing that we have on this earth. And if it meant giving my life for the Eucharist, take my life. Mm. Don't mess with me. So, David, where can people buy this book? 
Right now, there's a few different options. Um, uh, main option is you can get it on Amazon. It is available on paperback. It is available in Kindle format, and it's also available in um, Kindle Unlimited, so you can read it. Uh, I don't know how Kindle Unlimited works, but I know that they read by the page and stuff, and so it's it's available there. If anyone happens to ever want a autographed copy or anything like that, I do have Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, and people can get a hold of me um, through Facebook or other methods, and uh, then I can do a. I have plenty of them on hand that I can mail out. Um, I also do a lot of uh, book signings at different churches, and it just uh, depends on what church I'm at that Sunday that I'll set up a little table just um, so I can talk to people about main, not just mainly my book, but the love of God. Yeah, I just hear that God loves us so much that he saved a sinner like me. Yeah. And you planning on doing I, any, any speaking engagements? Um, well, I've had a buddy or two ask me if I am, but I've never had anybody approach me to do one. But if anybody ever wanted me to, I'd be more than happy to do it. Yeah. You've come a long way, man, from from Satanist to uh, now you're you're actually working for the the Catholic Church. Yes, yes, yeah. I'm a pastoral care coordinator at St. Bernadette Catholic Church. It's amazing, man. It's a great story. I'm so happy for you. I love the title. I love you know. I I, I just got the electronic copy of this book, and it, it I I love the title. I love the uh, you know. I went through the the table of contents, and I started you know reading through some of the pages. Uh, you're a good writer. So, uh, well, thank you. Yep. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the titles of the uh, book. I don't want to ruin it, but the the funny one about the pink hair. <laughs> when I wrote that title <laughs> out, I sent it to my buddies who knew the knew it what was going on, and they just laughed. They were like, "Are you really going to put that as a title?" I'm like, why not? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> so, before we leave, De Deacon Dave, you have any more questions for our guest? I uh, know it's a, a great story. Uh, wonderful faith you have, David. Uh, what a witness! Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Deacon. Deacon Dave, will you take us out with a with a uh, blessing? Well, sure. Um, Lord be with you and with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, for my guest, David Fisher, my producer, Deacon Dave Imhoff. I'm down the hall, Dave, always praying that your troubles be less, your blessings be more, and nothing but happiness come through your door. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.